0: Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am if then uh, if i then your teacher and lord have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet the word of the lord be to God.
1: we've been in this series in the gospel of john over the past 6-8 weeks we started in january and we come to the season of lent the next 5 sundays and then palm sunday and easter and we're actually in the gospel of john entering into the final week of jesus in fact, John 13 to 17 which we 're going to be in the next five weeks or four or five weeks is, is all takes place in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. So we go from events that take place over a couple of years to events that take place over hours the Significance of this is that the Gospel of John, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of John is the last Gospel that was written historically, about 30, 40 years after the the earlier Gospels. And John often includes stories or insights that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record. All three of those Gospels record Jesus' last supper with His disciples, right? And then afterwards, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then He's arrested. But John gives us some insight here. He gives us this episode that we had read today about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Basically, after the Lord's Supper, Judas leaves, and then Jesus gives this story, this long, not story, this this long episode of teaching this discourse on who they are, who he is, and what he is about to do, even though they don't fully understand all of that. So, Jesus is trying to lay out for them, this is what I am about, and this is what you are to be about. In the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at, what Jesus is doing in that instance. As many um, commentators note, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the Last Supper, Jesus taking the bread and all that, kind of reenacting the Passover and saying, it all points to me, John doesn't because in all of this, John is giving uh, kind of theological underpinnings to what the Lord's Supper was about. Basically, it's about creating the kingdom people that Jesus has come to birth in His death and resurrection. A countercultural community that is supposed to live by the power of the Spirit in love and grace towards one another and the world around them. And it begins this whole upper room scene in verses, uh, in chapter 13, that was just read for us. Let me get to the heart of it right away here, in verses four and five says that Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garment, and taking a towel tied around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So a couple of things just to hit at here, just thinking about what Jesus does. The details that are listed here are the sort that commentators note this is a eyewitness account. First century writings did not give this sort of detail out of a novelistic sort of way of going about things. They recorded details like he stood up after supper, he takes off his outer garment, he wraps a towel, and it's the eyewitness account of it, and it's also noted to be eyewitness account because there was no idea that some superior would do something so humbling. That's not a great way to present your leader in that ancient culture. And it's particularly so we see Jesus humbling himself in this entire episode. An outer garment which Jesus takes off in that first century culture and actually all of the Old Testament culture represented your status and position in a community. So you wore the clothing that indicated who you were in a community, much like wearing your rank in the military. It's the reason why uh, the, the brothers of Joseph are really upset with his technicolor dream coat. It's not that his is prettier than theirs, is that the father had given Joseph a coat of honor that was elevating Joseph's status above his older brothers. Jesus is a rabbi. He is a leader in the community. It's very likely that his apparel represented that to his disciples in the wider community. So when Jesus very demonstratively takes off his cloak, he's laying aside his status. And then he takes a towel and wraps it around his waist. And this was not like a a towel we think of. It was actually more like a stole, and that's actually what a stole is meant to represent in the churches that use one. It's meant to be the towel that Jesus wrapped around his waist that was used for cleaning and things by a servant, a slave. At this point in having taken off his robe, he's wearing what is essentially a loincloth, his underwear, So here he is, a rabbi, a leader, who's just wearing his underwear and a towel for serving like a slave. And of course, it's more than just embarrassing. We think of like, okay, hey, you're wearing your underwear, that's a little embarrassing. But we're a culture that goes to the beach in our underwear, right? I mean, (laughs) that's essentially what you're wearing when you go to the beach in, in the modern world. In that culture, you would never do anything like that. You would never wear clothing like that that wasn't any clothing, So here the disciples are, they want their their leader to remain in a position of status and honor and he is disrobing and wearing the demeaning clothing of a servant or a slave. And then he begins to wash their feet. And this was a act of kindness. In that culture, of course, it was not uncommon, but also wasn't common, it wasn't every day you walked into your house if you were a commoner yourself and you had a servant wash your feet. The idea of the foot washing would have been reserved for honored guests entering your home or when you had a special occasion, you were trying to show honor and kindness to all of those who were there celebrating with you. The person who ended up washing the feet would have been the lowest person on the totem pole in that household. It was a demeaning act feet were considered offensive and still are in middle eastern culture there's a reason why sandals are raised or thrown at somebody as an offense in modern middle eastern culture and even jesus says if the, if a town does not accept your message you should kind of wipe you know kind of shake the dust off your feet as you leave it was an act of saying i'm done with you i reject you feet were offensive jesus does something that even one rabbinic writing said no male Jewish servant should ever have to do. If a Jewish family had a Jewish male servant, he should not be forced to wash feet, it was too demeaning. It was unprecedented in ancient writings, Greco-Roman or Jewish, to have a superior wash the feet of an inferior. This is the only time it's ever recorded. It's no wonder Peter protests, like he comes around to Peter and he's like, wait, 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 this is all wrong. It makes sense for his understanding of things, but what Jesus is doing is not just counter-intellectual or counter-cultural, it is completely astounding because at its root is the condescension of God, God humbling himself to the point of a servant and a slave. It's completely unheard of. But we get the hint that this is what's going on here in verses 1 through 3, the prologue to the foot-washing thing. This is the very first words. It says, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour, that means his death, his crucifixion, had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end meaning to the, to the culmination, the climax, the, the telos. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was, had come from God and was going back to God. I'm just going to stop there because that's all that's up on the screen. There's a couple phrases in here that we can overlook, but, but what's being said here is Jesus is God. That phrasing, from God, returning to God, Commentators note that this is household language. The ancient Near Eastern culture, and especially Jewish culture, but Greco-Roman culture as well, built their entire identities on household culture. So you had a patriarch, a head of household, under which was your name. So it would be in kind of a modern parlance, the, the Vito Corleone, you're part of the Corleone family, right, of you know, the, the godfather, and if you're associated with him, that gave you certain power, certain rights, certain things you could accomplish or do. Shakespeare talked about the Montagues and the Capulets, right? They were elevated families. And not everyone was a direct family line of a Capulet, but they were part of the household of the Capulets, even if they were servants in the Capulet family or the Montague family. What's being said here is he was from God, returning to God, is that he was of the household of God, the household of God the Father. His household was not, you know, Kersina. it was Yahweh. A little bit heavier. Jesus is from God. All the position and power in his community was being described right here. And on top of that, we get the description that all things were in his hands. He had power and authority over all things. If you go back to the original Greek of all things, you could translate it also, all things. Literally, all things, or everything. He had authority over all of creation and all of history. Jesus could do anything. You know, we live in a culture where we want autonomy. That's kind of the the dream of a a teenager is you get your keys and then you have autonomy, right? It means you could do whatever you want, but there's limits. There's always limits on all of us. We actually can't do whatever we want. We think freedom is doing whatever we want. We don't have the power to do whatever we want. There's things I would like to stop in the world. I don't have the power to stop them. There might be things I would want to do I can't do. Jesus, it says, has all authority. All things are in his hand. He has complete and total and absolute autonomy. He could do anything. And what does he do? He humbles himself. The incarnation is that original description of God Almighty humbling himself in the form of a baby. Philippians 2, which we recited earlier today as our confessional creed, described it this way. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, meaning he was God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. You can put that a different way, which is he he was God, fully God, but did not use his divinity for his own advantage. Or put it positively, Jesus has all authority, total autonomy, and does not use his authority, his wisdom, or his power for the good of others. or He only uses it for the good of others. He never uses it for himself. So, think about the astounding nature of John 13, what's being said in the prologue, even what Peter, James, and John are experiencing with their rabbi doing what he's doing. It's saying the God of the universe, the very one who flung the stars into space, is disrobing like a slave and washing the dirty feet of some common dudes in a culture where feet were particularly offensive. And then he calls his followers to do the same thing. We get this in verses 12 through 14 when Jesus says, says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, at the head of the table, he said to the disciples, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus is in the highest position in his community. He was a religious leader in a culture in which the religious systems of the day were central to their identity and and social hierarchy, and it had a social hierarchy with clear rules of status and position. Jesus, as a religious leader amongst his community, was the highest in his little disciple group, right? But also was widely being considered one of the most highly recognized, highest status men in the entire nation. You're right to call me teacher and Lord. That's what I am. I am your rabbi and I am a Lord. Jesus was recognized that way, so much so that his disciples want seats of honor when Jesus becomes king officially, right? They're arguing all the time about who's going to sit on his right and left hand, because that was their way of understanding what mattered. What mattered was what honor and status you had in your community. Jesus was here, and he was about to be here, and they wanted to be right next to him. They knew they couldn't kind of take his place, but maybe they could be at his right and left hand. They used to argue about who was Jesus' favorite. It was obviously John. A name like that, you just got to love him, right? But they really did. They are, Peter, James, John, they're arguing all the time about who's the favorite, who's going to sit on the right and left hand. You're like, are you crazy? Well, this was very normal because that's what they valued. We would have done the same thing. It's actually one of the reasons or one of the things that Peter is getting at when he says to Jesus, Jesus says, oh, you know, I'm going to come to wash your feet. And Peter's like, well, you don't wash my feet. You're my rabbi, my Lord. You can't do that. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Peter said, oh, okay, my hands on my head as well. On one level, what Peter is doing right there is recognizing, okay, Jesus is saying this is necessary. And by all accounts, by the description that we're given, it's like, Jesus had started over here and was going around the table and had finally gotten to Peter. So Peter's like 11th or 12th out of the 12. And once he realizes this is a good thing, you're supposed to let it happen, he's like, Ooh, double me up. It's like the hands on the head, which was a way of anointing somebody, christening them at a higher level. And Peter's probably like, Get my hands on my head too, then, Jesus. He's like, That's the right answer. He's probably sticking his tongue out at the rest of them, like, You guys didn't think of this, dummies. I want the double portion. I value it. But that's not at all what Jesus is about. Jesus is not about getting the double portion or finding the seat of honor. He's come to establish a countercultural kingdom. The upside-down values of the kingdom of God are humility and generosity, not seats of honor. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Take up your cross and follow me you wanna live the true life, die to yourself. True greatness is serving one another. And no one is beneath you in the kingdom of God. And that's hard for us. These upside down values didn't just challenge that culture, they challenge us in our modern culture. We're a very, I don't know if you've noticed, this polarized society, right? But the nature of our polarization means that we don't just see people and disagree with them, we have an animosity and fear. It's always a zero-sum game now. In order for me and my way to succeed, their way must be eliminated. It's always a defeat the other person, eliminate them. We are contentious, see others as the problem. We're also modern individualists, right? We're Western modern individualists. So the idea of humbling yourself and giving yourself in service to others without getting anything in return doesn't really match what I want to do. And we're a performance-based culture, especially in the US, right? We measure ourselves, our value, our life by our achievements. Not by washing people's feet. Jesus' kingdom was so countercultural back then, but it's been so countercultural to every culture it has ever confronted. There's not a culture that owns Jesus' kingdom. Every kingdom is exposed and confronted and challenged, including our very own. Consider Jesus' posture and his mindset as he's going about doing what he's doing right here. It's right, it's absolute humility. He, he is the highest person, but he's acting the servant and the slave in everything that he's doing. He surrenders his position, his position at the head of the table as the one whose feet should have been washed. He surrenders what is his due, what is his right, what, what's due him, right? Like, what's owed him? Jesus gives up his honor, his place, that, that need for recognition or credit. He even surrenders his dignity by what he puts on. We're always worried about what people are gonna think of us. He does all of this to bless and honor his pupils, his students, and he does so not to show them up, he does so in gentleness and love, he's displaying kindness, he's honoring them. I think he is saying, "What, what does this posture look like? You see what I'm doing, what would this posture look like for you to live it out in your family or at work? I would say at school, but if you're in school, don't think of your friends. What would it look like to live out the washing of others' feet with people that aren't your friends, with your teachers? (laughs) You know what it would look like? It would look like a marriage of co-servants. The description really in Ephesians 5. It would look like a humble attitude towards your parents. Trying to help others advance and not worrying about whether that helps you to advance. Not worried about getting credit ever. Not needing recognition. Honoring your wife. Encouraging your supervisor. Serving a teacher. We are called as disciples to be the countercultural community of humility and grace that Jesus inaugurated. It is our calling and attitude with one another. It's one of the things I've been pushing in my own head towards for CCV over the past couple of years. It's birthed out of our original vision and values of being gospel-driven, people who are motivated by the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ and the way we treat one another, that we would be humble and generous of spirit in a culture that is everything but that. And part of this is because there's also a missional need for that type of community in our culture right now. You know, in, in years past, people would come to faith in Christianity and Christ because they believed the tenets of Christianity and then they would, you know, kind of join a church. My observation is people need to belong before they believe now. And oftentimes, what people are looking for is a, an authentic community. So it's defined so many different ways, but I think the Christian authentic community would be marked by humility and generosity. Living out the servant nature of the one who inaugurated this whole thing. To humbly serve one another. And not just people you agree with or people that you like or those that can reciprocate. Think about whose feet Jesus washed on that night. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Think about what Judas does to Jesus, right? And Judas was really close with Jesus. You know how close Judas was with Jesus? We, don't, we always think of Judas as the betrayer, like it's obvious, right? But when Jesus is at the table for the Last Supper, the indication is that to his right is John, to his right is Peter, based on what happens in this interaction, and to his left is Judas, The two seats of honor are John and Judas. And guess what? None of the disciples are like, what's he doing there? They do not think that Judas is anything but one of Jesus' closest friends. And it's sort of, yeah, he's in the place of honor. It's Judas. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. It is mind-blowingly unnatural for Jesus to then have washed his feet. Judas is an enemy by every standard that we put down as an enemy. He was a disloyal backstabber. He pretended to be Jesus' friend for years. He deceived everyone else. And then in the end, he sells Jesus to death for not even that much money. Jesus knows this. And he washes his feet. He honors and blesses him. What does this say about us <laughs> and who we're called to love? And I don't mean, just as a, as a caveat here, I actually do not mean that you need to go and serve and love somebody who has abused you, okay? I'm gonna put, put that one to the side just for a second. There is evil that needs to be confronted and justice that needs to happen and you need to be in a place of healing and love and safety, not just stepping into that. But we can define a metaphoric Judas in a whole lot of ways that don't go to there. People that you're competitive with. People you disagree with. Your uncle, your brother, your grandmother over the past five, six years, if that hasn't been exposed. There have been a lot of broken relationships. People who have just hurt you, rejected you. Or honestly, people who exhaust you. How is the Holy Spirit, even as I'm talking about this, prompting you towards generosity of spirit, towards humility and love? So how are you going to do this? How are you going to live out absolute humility, total generosity, and constant service? If Jesus is just a model to emulate, if humility... It's just a new moral code. Like all the other rabbis said this, philosophers said this, other religions say this. Jesus comes along is like, hey, I've got a new one, humility, try this on. If Jesus is only a model to emulate with a new moral code to follow, and you're trying to live out this sort of humility that Jesus demonstrates, the sort of service that Jesus does, if he's just a model to follow, you will be crushed by guilt and failure because it is hard to serve people. It is hard to serve people humbly like Jesus did. And you're going to find yourself constantly not living up to the standard. Or you're going to be resentful of those you're serving, even your own family. I'm sure that would never happen to you guys. But because they don't notice or seem to care all the things you do for them. You'll be susceptible to abuse by those who might take advantage of you and your guilt and shame of trying to live up to being a good, humble servant. And most of us will just be self-righteous and superior. Constantly aware of how much you're serving. How much you give. And how little recognition you get. And simply how little others do in comparison to you. So where do we get the power to live that countercultural community of humility and generosity? There's a it's actually right in Peter's interaction with Jesus. You know, Jesus comes around to Peter, tries to wash his feet. He's like, no, not the feet, hands and Oh, okay, I need to do it, hands and head as well, right, that whole thing. But it's this phrase in here in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Hear that. If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. What is Jesus getting at? What Jesus is not getting at is, if I don't wash your feet, you're, you're not a part of me. He, how, how do we know that? Because he washed Judas's feet, and Judas was not a part of him. <laughs> so Jesus is hinting at something else here. Peter, you need me to cleanse you. Cleanse you of your sin and guilt and shame and you must accept it, receive my washing. You must receive me. So of course, Jesus, even in this phrasing, is pointing to, even in his actions of serving, is pointing to the cross. Dirty feet and the foot washing that Jesus does is what's called an enacted parable. He is doing something that is telling something, that it is a sign pointing to the cross and the cleansing of sin that comes because of his death in our place. And Jesus is saying, You need to accept your need to be washed. The gift of Jesus' cleansing must be received. And this takes humility. It takes humility to admit your helplessness, your sin and your need of cleansing. It takes humility to accept Jesus on his terms, that he is your Lord and your savior. And everyone needs to do it. Even the very good. In verse 10, as Jesus talks about this whole cleansing thing, he says, but not everyone is clean. And of course, he was talking about Judas. And while we quickly jump to our understanding of Judas as the betrayer of Jesus, again, remember in that setting, with Peter right there hearing him, Jesus knowing who Judas was, that Judas did all the things that disciples do. He showed up at church every week. He was heavily involved in small groups. He went on mission trips. He did all the things you're supposed to do. He probably had his quiet time every morning He was morally good enough, morally good enough, religiously active enough that nobody ever suspected him. And yet in his heart he was not willing to accept Jesus on his terms. And did not see his need to be cleansed. Even the very good, the very very good, the people who do great things need to be cleansed. We all need to admit our need and receive Jesus, and Judas was not willing. So where is the power to have true humility? It comes from being cleansed by grace, not because of anything that you or I do. Peter just needed Jesus to do it, wash his feet, and say, yeah, okay, I'll accept it. True power to live out the humble servanthood of Jesus comes from being cleansed by grace, loved by the one who is truly great but gave it up for us. And so no longer looking to your moral record, including how humble you are or how much you serve, no longer looking to your moral record to justify yourself or try to measure up in life. At that point, you're actually free, free to start forgetting yourself, to stop focusing on yourself and thinking about yourself so much. Why? Because you're finally loved, loved by the only one that matters. It's the power of that love infused by the Holy Spirit that enables us to love as Jesus did. Let us pray. Create in us clean hearts, O God. Renew a right spirit within us. God, you do not desire sacrifices or burnt offerings. You don't desire our religiousness or our goodness. True worship of you is a broken and contrite heart, a willingness to say, I need to be cleansed, and then recognizing the depth of your love for us.
2: Amen. Uh, we're going to go back in and sing how deep the Father's love for us is. A response to this message of God's humility and love and grace towards us. How deep the Father's love for us. Ready? Death and resurrection. Why should it?